Chapter 18 of Beast, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 18 The Mysterious Lama Avenger. We rested soundly in the yurta after the two days of travel which had brought us one hundred seventy miles through the snow and sharp cold. Round the evening meal of juicy mutton, we were talking freely and carelessly when suddenly we heard a low, hoarse voice. "'Sane, good evening!' We turned around from the brazier to the door and saw a medium-height, very heavy-set Mongol in deerskin overcoat and cap with side-flaps, and the long, wide tying-strings of the same material. Under his girdle lay the same large knife in the green sheath which we had seen on the departing horseman. "'Amorsane,' we answered. He quickly untied his girdle, and laid aside his overcoat. He stood before us in a wonderful gown of silk, yellow as beaten gold, and girt with a brilliant blue sash. His cleanly-shaven face, short hair, red coral rosary on the left hand, and his yellow garment, proved clearly that before us stood some high lama priest, with a big colt under his blue sash. I turned to my host and Tseren, and read in their faces fear and veneration. The stranger came over to the brazier, and sat down. "'Let's speak Russian,' he said, and took a bit of meat. The conversation began. The stranger began to find fault with the government of the living Buddha in Urga. "'There they liberate Mongolia, capture Urga, defeat the Chinese army, and here in the West they give us no news of it.' We are without action here while the Chinese kill our people and steal from them. I think that Bogdo Khan might send us envoys. How is it the Chinese can send their envoys from Urga and Klatka to Kabdo, asking for assistance, and the Mongol government cannot do it? Why? Will the Chinese send help to Urga? I asked. Our guest laughed hoarsely and said, I caught all the envoys, took away their letters, and then sent them back into the ground. He laughed again and glanced around peculiarly with his blazing eyes. Only then did I notice that his cheekbones and eyes had lines strange to the Mongols of Central Asia. He looked more like a Tartar or a Kyrgyz. We were silent and smoked our pipes. How soon will the detachment of Chahars leave Uliasatai? he asked. We answered that we had not heard about them. Our guest explained that from Inner Mongolia the Chinese authorities had sent out a strong detachment, mobilized from among the most warlike tribe of Chahars, which wander about the region just outside the Great Wall. Its chief was a notorious Hunghutsi leader, promoted by the Chinese government to the rank of captain, on promising that he would bring under subjugation to the Chinese authorities all the tribes of the districts of Kabdo and Yurianhai. When he learned whither we were going, and for what purpose, he said he could give us the most accurate news, and relieve us from the necessity of going farther. "'Besides that, it is very dangerous,' he said. "'Because Kabdo will be massacred and burned. I know this positively.' When he heard of our unsuccessful attempt to pass through Tibet, he became attentive and was very sympathetic in his bearing toward us, and, with evident feeling of regret, expressed himself strongly. 
Only I could have helped you in this enterprise, but not the Narabanchi Hutuktu. With my laissez-passe, you could have gone anywhere in Tibet. I am Tushigun Lama. Tushigun Lama! How many extraordinary tales I had heard about him! He is a Russian Kalmuk, who, because of his propaganda work for the independence of the Kalmuk people, made the acquaintance of many Russian prisons under the Tsar, and, for the same cause, added to his list under the Bolsheviki. He escaped to Mongolia, and at once attained a great influence among the Mongols. It was no wonder, for he was a close friend and pupil of the Dalai Lama in Potala, which is Lhasa, was the most learned among the Lamites, a famous thaumaturgist and doctor. He occupied an almost independent position in his relationship with the living Buddha, and achieved to the leadership of all the old wandering tribes of western Mongolia and Zungaria, even extending his political domination over the Mongolian tribes of Turkestan. His influence was irresistible, based as it was on his great control of mysterious science, as he expressed it, but I was also told that it has its foundation largely in the panicky fear which he could produce in the Mongols. Every one who disobeyed his orders perished. Such a one never knew the day or the hour when, in his yurta or beside his galloping horse on the plains, the strange and powerful friend of the Dalai Lama would appear. The stroke of a knife, a bullet, or strong fingers strangling the neck like a vise, accomplished the justice of the plans of this miracle-worker. Without the walls of the yurta the wind whistled and roared and drove the frozen snow sharply against the stretched felt. Through the roar of the wind came the sound of many voices in mingled shouting, wailing, and laughter. I felt that in such surroundings it were not difficult to dumbfound a wandering nomad with miracles, because nature herself had prepared the setting for it. This thought had scarcely time to flash through my mind, before Tushigun Lama suddenly raised his head, looked sharply at me, and said, "'There is very much unknown in nature, and the skill of using the unknown produces the miracle. But the power is given to few. I want to prove it to you, and you may tell me afterwards whether you have seen it before or not.' He stood up, pushed back the sleeves of his yellow garment, seized his knife and strode across to the shepherd. "'Michik, stand up!' he ordered. When the shepherd had risen, the lama quickly unbuttoned his coat and bared the man's chest. I could not yet understand what was his intention, when suddenly the Tushigun with all his force struck his knife into the chest of the shepherd. The Mongol fell all covered with blood, a splash of which I noticed on the yellow silk of the lama's coat. "'What have you done?' I exclaimed. "'Shh! Be still!' he whispered, turning to me his now quite blanched face. With a few strokes of the knife he opened the chest of the Mongol, and I saw the man's lungs softly breathing, and the distinct palpitations of the heart. The Lama touched these organs with his fingers, but no more blood appeared to flow, and the face of the shepherd was quite calm. He was lying with his eyes closed, and appeared to be in deep and quiet sleep. As the Lama began to open his abdomen, I shut my eyes in fear and horror, and when I opened them a little while later, I was still more dumbfounded at seeing the shepherd with his coat still open and his breast normal, 
quietly sleeping on his side, and Tushigun Lama sitting peacefully by the brazier, smoking his pipe and looking into the fire, in deep thought. "'It is wonderful,' I confessed. "'I have never seen anything like it.' "'About what are you speaking?' asked the Kalmuk. "'About your demonstration, or miracle, as you call it,' I answered. "'I never said anything like that,' refuted the Kalmuk, with coldness in his voice. "'Did you see it?' I asked of my companion. "'What?' he queried in a dozing voice. I realized that I had become the victim of the hypnotic power of Tushigun Lama, but I preferred this to seeing an innocent Mongolian die, for I had not believed that Tushigun Lama, after slashing open the bodies of his victims, could repair them again so readily. The following day we took leave of our hosts. We decided to return, inasmuch as our mission was accomplished, and Tushigun Lama explained to us that he would move through space. He wandered over all Mongolia, lived both in the single, simple yurta of the shepherd and hunter, and in the splendid tents of the princes and tribal chiefs, surrounded by deep veneration and panic fear, enticing and cementing to him rich and poor alike with his miracles and prophecies. When bidding us adieu, the Kalmuk sorcerer slyly smiled and said, "'Do not give any information about me to the Chinese authorities.' Afterwards he added, "'What happened to you yesterday evening was a futile demonstration. You Europeans will not recognize that we dark-minded nomads possess the powers of mysterious science. If you could only see the miracles and power of the Most Holy Tashi Lama, when at his command the lamps and candles before the ancient statue of Buddha light themselves, and when the icons of the gods begin to speak and prophesy.' but there exists a more powerful and more holy man. "'Is it the king of the world in Agarti?' I interrupted. He stared and glanced at me in amazement. "'Have you heard about him?' he asked as his brows knit in thought. After a few seconds he raised his narrow eyes and said, "'Only one man knows his holy name. Only one man now living was ever in Agarti.' That is I. That is the reason why the Most Holy Dalai Lama has honored me, and why the living Buddha in Urga fears me. But in vain, for I shall never sit on the holy throne of the highest priests in Lhasa, nor reach that which has come down from Genghis Khan to the head of our yellow faith. I am no monk. I am a warrior and avenger. He jumped smartly into the saddle, whipped his horse, and whirled away, flinging out as he left the common Mongolian phrase of adieu, Sain, Sain Bena. On the way back, Tseren related to us the hundreds of legends surrounding Tushigun Lama. One tale especially remained in my mind. It was in 1911 or 1912, when the Mongols by armed force tried to attain their liberty in a struggle with the Chinese. The general Chinese headquarters in western Mongolia was Kabdu, where they had about ten thousand soldiers under the command of their best officers. The command to capture Kabdu was sent to Hun Baldon, a simple shepherd who had distinguished himself in fights with the Chinese, and received from the living Buddha the title of Prince of Hun, 
ferocious, absolutely without fear, and possessing gigantic strength, Baldon had several times led to the attack his poorly armed Mongols, but each time had been forced to retreat after losing many of his men under the machine-gun fire. Unexpectedly, Tushigun Lama arrived. He collected all the soldiers, and then said to them, "'You must not fear death, and must not retreat. You are fighting and dying for Mongolia, for which the gods have appointed a great destiny. See what the fate of Mongolia will be?' He made a wide, sweeping gesture with his hand, and all the soldiers saw the country round about set with rich yurtas, and pastures covered with great herds of horses and cattle. On the plains appeared numerous horsemen on richly saddled steeds. The women were gowned in the finest of silk, with massive silver rings in their ears, and precious ornaments in their elaborate headdresses. Chinese merchants led an endless caravan of merchandise up to distinguished-looking Mongol seats, surrounded by the gaily-dressed tsirik, or soldiers, and proudly negotiating with the merchants for their wares. Shortly the vision disappeared, and Tushigun began to speak. "'Do not fear death. It is a release from our labour on earth, and the path to the state of constant blessings. Look to the east.' Do you see your brothers and friends who have fallen in battle? We see, we see, the Mongol warriors exclaimed in astonishment, as they all looked upon a great group of dwellings which might have been yurtas, or the arches of temples flushed with a warm and kindly light. Red and yellow silk were interwoven in bright bands that covered the walls and floor. Everywhere the gilding on pillars and walls gleamed brightly. On the great red altar burned the thin sacrificial candles in gold candelabra, beside the massive silver vessels filled with milk and nuts. On soft pillows about the floor sat the Mongols who had fallen in the previous attack on Kabdu. Before them stood low lacquered tables, laden with many dishes of steaming succulent flesh of the lamb and the kid, with high jugs of wine and tea, with plates of borsuk, a kind of sweet rich cakes, with aromatic zuturin covered with sheep's fat, with bricks of dried cheese, with dates, raisins, and nuts. These fallen soldiers smoked golden pipes and chatted gaily. This vision in turn also disappeared, and before the gazing Mongols stood only the mysterious Kalmuk with his hand upraised. "'To battle and return not without victory! I am with you in the fight!' The attack began. The Mongols fought furiously, perished by the hundreds, but not before they had rushed into the heart of Kabdu. Then was re-enacted the long-forgotten picture of Tartar hordes destroying European towns. Hun Baldon ordered carried over him a triangle of lances with brilliant red streamers, a sign that he gave up the town to the soldiers for three days. Murder and pillage began. All the Chinese met their death there. The town was burned and the walls of the fortress destroyed. Afterwards Hun Baldon came to Uliasutai, and also destroyed the Chinese fortress there. The ruins of it still stand with the broken embattlements and towers, the useless gates, and the remnants of the burned official quarters and soldiers' barracks. End of chapter